He is alive forever and ever. And, and you know, this is in, this has to live, this has to work. This has to work in real life. It has to work in the bitter and the sweet of life. I was just, I, my heart was just torn this morning. I don't know if any of you saw the news, but there were two terrorist attacks on Coptic Christians, our brothers and sisters in Egypt, on Palm Sunday, on their Palm Sunday service, which is what, eight, 12 hours earlier than us. And, and 36 people were killed just because they met together in the name of Jesus to celebrate the triumphant king who came. But, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is what we've just been singing about. It's not just that all of a sudden this terrible tragedy, and it is those, I can't imagine to be a family member of someone that survived and has lost loved ones. But, but this is it. This is it. That's not the end. We have to always remember that. The death is not the end. It's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story for our brothers and sisters over there who are now ushered into the kingdom of God in the midst of a tragedy, in the midst of things that break our hearts and make us feel so sad. We serve a triumphant king who has the final say that death never triumphed over him. Because of that, because of that, we know loved ones, even today, just because of you, just because they worship you, just because they're Christians. I pray for their families. I pray for that community that's under attack, that, Lord, they would remember that triumph. In the end, all is well. We thank you that this life is not all there is. And you have promised us that there is an eternity that is in your hands. So we worship you, Lord, today. The Lord of this life and the Lord of the life to come. The only one that is worthy of all of our praise, our love, our adoration, our obedience, the very core of our being. Before you sit down, before you sit down, would you greet some people around you? Look for somebody you, that you've never met. Make them feel welcome. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 11, but before I, I launch into that, let me just remind you of several things. Um, one is the Syria offering. We'll run this through Easter. I think this is maybe the last Sunday that the envelopes are in the bulletin. I'm not sure, but if you want to give to this, again, great need over there. Millions of displaced people, an opportunity for us to to minister to them, and I hope you were as moved as I was by the story that I shared a week or two ago about that. Invite cards for next Sunday. They're on the back table there. You have somebody that you're reaching out to and maybe a contact that you make just in some of your normal life. I, I took one this week with me and gave it to a lady, and she seemed to be very grateful. Somebody I've been just talking up a little bit that I see regularly. Um, 
Monday, Thursday, this week on Thursday night, we're doing this in conjunction with uh, Vida Abenante, the Hispanic church that meets in the West Building. And so Pastor Axel and I will be doing that service together. Hope you can join us. Seven o'clock, it's about an hour-long service. Hope you can be here. Sunrise next Sunday, and uh, our service is there on Sunday. And, and let me just say this. People will come to church on Easter that you can't get to church any other time. So if you have somebody you've been reaching out to, this is a great opportunity. And looking ahead, looking ahead, uh, the Sunday after Easter, Danny Payne will be back. A lot of you remember Danny. He was our student pastor here for four or five years. He'll be speaking on the 23rd. And then on the 30th, I hope you noticed the one church insert that we talked about. Had never done this before. We're going to try to put all of you in here on one Sunday. This church and the other church. You know, the one that meets at 11 o'clock? Who are those people? Anyway, why would anybody wait till 11 o'clock to come to church? No, that's what you're all thinking. Uh, we're going to try to get enough chairs in here and have one church. I, I just think it, it would be really powerful for us all to be to get together and so have some refreshments before then at 9.30, at 10 o'clock, have one worship service, have a big worship service and a great time. And then our student ministry is going to be having a, a cookout that Sunday so you can stay around and, and eat together if you want to eat with your family or your life group or something, it'd be a way cool thing, and um, raise money for, for a camp ministry this summer, right, for our, for our kids to go to camp. So anyway, that's coming up. Um, hadn't figured out how we'll get all the chairs in here yet, how, where we're going to park everybody. I will figure that out later. We'll figure it out on the fly. We'll find out how it works. So I better come early that day, that's what I'm thinking. Mark? Mark chapter 11 is our text this morning. Before I read, let me just give you a little background on the book of Mark. Interesting book. Uh, Mark covers, not, it doesn't cover the first year of Christ's ministry. It just covers the second and third year of his ministry. And the first 10 chapters of Mark cover those, basically those two years. And starting in chapter 11 through the end of the book, it's really just the last eight days of the life of Jesus. Well, actually not that long. It's from Palm Sunday through Resurrection Sunday, so he actually didn't live that entire time. Those, those last day, eight days are covered in chapters 11 through 16 because it really slows down and goes into a lot of detail that I think are pretty powerful. Now, Jesus has been setting the stage for what's going to happen during Passion Week, for him going to the cross and dying for us. In fact, in chapter 8, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, three different times he tells them, he says, I, I, my, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. He's been telling them this. Now, disciples are kind of like us. They're pretty dull, because you know when it really came about, they didn't quite get it. Uh, it's kind of like us. You know, the Lord kind of has to tell us things sometimes over and over, and we're like, oh, I get it. You know, it just takes a while, it seems like, for it to sink in sometimes. So that's the, that's the set up our text today. Mark chapter 11. Let's look at the first, uh, we'll work our way kind of slowly through this passage. Let's look at verse 1 through 7. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, tell him the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, 
What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus they, and threw their cloaks on it, over it, he sat on it. Let's stop there for right now. There's some different ideas about this whole story about this Aaron going to, to get the cult. Some people think it was a supernatural work and the people just, just let, him ta- let them take it because it was supernatural. They just let him go. Other, others think that perhaps these, these were individuals who already knew about Jesus or maybe even were involved in the ministry of Jesus. I really like the second idea, and I think it kind of fits the text because they said to him, the reason they gave was, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. And I was thinking, what a great application to us today. You know, I think the Lord says things to us and nudges in our heart, and we read scripture, or we come to church, or we do a Bible study, and we get those nudges, and it's like, the Lord needs this. There's something that you and I don't have. And we need to remember, you know, even when we're reading the Gospels, we think about, you know, Jesus and the Twelve. Jesus and the Twelve Apostles. Um, but, but there were also a lot of other people that were involved in the ministry of Jesus. And, and some of them were named and some of them weren't named. But you think about Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Joseph of Arimathea and, and others who were named men and women who assisted him in his ministry. And it was just a reminder to me today that as we, as we try to apply that to who we are and where we are today, that I can't do all the work of the ministry that needs to be done in this community under the name of our church. I, I can't do it all. My, my staff can't do it all. In fact, the deacons can't do it all. The, the other people who are involved in ministry, we, it needs, all of us need to do our part. All of us have a part to play and God's plan where he has placed you. And if you live in Emporia, then that's your ministry. I mean, if you live in Topeka, that's your ministry. If you live with the coal trains in the Philippines, that's your ministry. I don't expect the coal trains to minister to you guys here because they're over there. But I expect you to minister to this community because this is where we are. The Lord needs us to do our part. And I think the Lord says that. In this context, he needed a donkey. So what was their part? It was to loan them this donkey so Jesus could ride in to town. Sometimes it's something very practical that you can do. So the Bible teaches that, that when you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, and the Holy Spirit gifts you to do things for God. We have natural abilities. We have the resources of time. We have the resources of money. We have things that we can use. And the Bible talks about us as believers being accountable for how we use those things. Giving an account to the Lord Almighty one day for how we use those. And great story, if you haven't read it in Matthew's Gospel, I think it's chapter 25 of, of the talents. About the master who gave one guy, uh, a talent was a large amount of silver. We think of talent today, we think about somebody playing the drums or playing the guitar or whatever. But a talent was a large amount of silver, okay? Maybe like 75 pounds or something like that, I think it was. A lot of silver. So he gave one one talent, he gave one two talents, he gave one five talents. And he held each of them accountable for what they had to use it for good. The The Lord gives us talents, it's money, it's time, it's our abilities and our resources and our gifts to use for Him. 
Now, and you're sitting there, and, and all of you are thinking, I'm just a one-talent person. I'm sure not the five-talent guy. I'm just, well, just use your one-talent. You see, all God expects us to do is what we can do. He doesn't expect us to do what we can't do. Sometimes we look at, you know, and I don't, whatever field you're in, you look at people who are, who are just doing so much more, you know. You know, if you're farming, you know, 400 acres, you're looking at the guy that's farming 4,000 acres. If you're, if you're running a, a $1 million business, you're looking at the guy that's running a $5 million business, you know, and going, man. If you're pastoring a church of 450, you're looking at the guy that has a church of 4,050. You say, but I'm not accountable for that, and you're not accountable for that. You're just accountable for what you have and where you are. Because you see, God Almighty is a good God, he holds us accountable, but he's fair. He's fair. He just holds you accountable for what you have. The problem doesn't break down. The problem breaks down when we don't use what we do have. There's an old poem by Ellen Gates. If you cannot own the ocean sail among the swiftest fleet, rocking on the highest billows, laughing at the storms you meet, you can stand among the sailors, anchored still within the bay, and lend a hand to help them, as they launch their boats away. And I just have to say, rare is the week that we don't ask you to help us with something. And let me, let, me, let me say this, I don't expect anybody to do everything, but almost every week we're asking for somebody to help teach in Big Picture Studio, or, or help with Awana, or uh, bake muffins for the international students, or, or bake cookies for Beto Junction every year that we give away on Christmas Eve to truckers. We're, we're always asking for, for something, and I don't expect any of you to do all of it, but I expect every one of you to do something, because I think our Lord does. I think He expects us all to do something with what we've been giving, the resources we have. And so I think the question is, what is it? And, and, and listen for that nudge of the Lord coming and whispering in your ear through His Spirit, by His Spirit, not an audible voice, don't misread me, but there's time the Lord nudges it and He says, the Lord needs that. The Lord needs you to step up. The Lord needs you to write the check. The Lord needs you to serve in this class. The Lord needs you to bake muffins. The Lord needs you to welcome people at the door. The Lord needs you to work in the coffee room. I don't know what it is. Just do your part. Now, this, this, this riding in on this donkey, okay, this, this was a miraculous thing on several levels. Now, the obvious one is what it says in the text. It says, it never been ridden. Now, I, I don't know a whole lot about animals. Some of the rest of you know a lot more than me. But I'm thinking, you know, from what I see on TV and read about this, that when they, before you ride a horse, you have to, have to break it. The horse has to get used to having a saddle on it and somebody riding on it. And at least in the movies, they buck people all over that place, you know? They're just like, it's a tough deal. This one's never been ridden. We don't see anything about a bucking donkey in here. Because uh, Jesus sat down on it, and he probably whispered in his ear, and he said, behave, buddy. <laughs> just thinking. And, and he said, yes, sir. But you know what's even more miraculous than that is that this was prophesied in the book of Zechariah over 400 years before. There's a verse. This is the verse. 
Would you read this aloud with me? Let's read this together. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was prophesied. Zechariah prophesied this over 400 years before it happened. That's even more miraculous. Let's, let's continue on. Starting verse 8. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So what's happening here? Well, we saw in verse 7 right before here that, that his disciples took their cloaks and they made a saddle for Jesus to sit on the donkey. Now what's happening? This large crowd that followed him, they were not to be outdone, so they began carpeting the road with palm branches and their cloaks. Their cloaks. Now these were, these were just working class, regular people. A lot of poor people. They took their cloaks off. They probably owned how many cloaks? Probably one, maybe two. And they laid it on the road for Jesus. They gave him the red carpet treatment, we would say today. That's pretty extravagant. That's pretty radical. Because, I mean, they, put it, they got, probably got muddy, and, and the donkey stomped on it, and maybe even the donkey did what donkeys do, you know, on their cloaks, out on the road. Pretty extravagant. That, it doesn't stop here. In fact, if you want to read through the rest of Mark's gospel, not while I'm preaching, but if you want to do that sometime, you get over to chapter 14, and, and there was the woman that took the ointment, and anointed Jesus. Do you remember that story? Anointed him for his crucifixion ahead of time. And the disciples said, oh, this, this is this terrible extravagance. It, evidently, this, this was very expensive perfume. They said you could have sold it and got the money for a year's wages. A year's wages. Hard to get our mind around that. Extravagant. We'd almost say foolish. Jesus said it wasn't foolish. And he said this. He said, everywhere the gospel's preached, this story will be told. How would you like to live in the day of Jesus and had the opportunity to do something for him? And he said about what you did, everywhere the gospel is preached, your story, your story will be told. I think sometimes we, we underestimate and we, we get the price tags all mixed up and we value all the wrong things. I was thinking about when Jesus was teaching and he was talking about the kingdom of God and, and over in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 13, he was talking about the kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of God is like that. And one of the stories he said the kingdom of God is like a, a pearl of great price. And it says a man found it and went and he sold everything he had so he could buy it.
you know, I, I just, I, as I was pondering this passage this week and thinking about these events that lead up to the crucifixion of Christ and thinking about the, the people giving their donkey, lending their donkey, the disciples putting their cloaks on the donkey, the people spreading the cloaks on the road, the woman in chapter 14 that will pour out this expensive ointment on the, on the feet and, and the hair and the head of Jesus. It just struck me how that we, we, we sometimes are not very extravagant in our love for Christ. Like I read about, when I read this text and I think about their extravagance and their, we would look at that in our practical American minds and say, how wasteful. And but it was not. And they're not the fools. We're foolish for thinking that. So, I don't know exactly what that means, and I, I just toy with that concept of, 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 of extravagance. Um, in the name of Christ, and what it means for us to do, to, to, be, to, to go a little bit overboard. In what we do. I don't know what that looks like for you, and I'm still trying to figure out what that looks like for me. But, it, but it's challenged me as I've thought about this. Let's move on. Um, just plant that little seed in your head. Remember, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a man who found a pearl of great price, and he sold everything for that. That tells me there's nothing that I give up, nothing that I give up that is too much for my king. Blessed is he, it says here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's from Psalm 118, verse 26. Hosanna literally means save now, but it, had become, it becomes a word of a, 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 an exclamation of praise. Hosanna It's something that people would shout. And so, and we still do that. We have the, the song that we sing is a contemporary song with Hosanna. And, and people have written songs all through the years. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hmm. So, so when this, all this is happening, did you notice what happened? It said that the, um, in, in the account over in, um, in Luke's account of this, in Luke chapter 19, it says when these, this happened and it spread the cloaks, that the Pharisees, the Pharisees said this, they said, they said, they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to quit doing that. Quit. What's all this? Why are they making all this fuss over you? And Jesus says something really important. He says, if they didn't do this, the stones would cry out. If they didn't do it, creation would cry out. Somebody, somewhere, is going to have a witness. Somebody's going to testify, here comes the king of everything. It's going to happen. Don't you wish you'd have been there? Now, it's not all hugs and kisses. In fact, from Luke's account, it says this in Luke 19, 41 and 42. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. But now it is hidden from your eyes. 
Now, let me talk a little bit about prophecy here. In the book of Daniel, Daniel had prophesied that the coming of the Messiah would happen in 480 years. Okay? That's the, the, the weeks of weeks. The, I forget the, exactly the math on that. 483 years. Um, and that the clock would begin by the edict to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Well, that happened under Artaxerxes. Um, that's found, and that's recorded for us in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. So a fellow who died a hundred years ago, Sir Robert Anderson, who died in 1918, did the math. And according to his calculation, that edict from Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall happened on March the 28th, 445 B.C. I don't know if that's right or not, okay? Just hang with me here. But it did happen around that, I don't know if it was that exact date or not. But he determined that the 483 years would come to April 6th, A.D. 32. Which corresponds with Jesus coming. So Bible scholars through the years have asked this question, that if the nation, if the nation had truly embraced Jesus as the Messiah... Would the last seven prophetic years that we read about, the time of tribulation before the coming of the kingdom and the ushering in of the reign of Christ, would that not have happened right then if he'd been received as king? That's one of those things, if that had happened, that, that means that the kingdom would have begun and we'd have never been. That's always hard to get your mind around. But all prophecy is driven by the foreknowledge of God, and we know that that didn't happen. And Jesus went on to say in Matthew, excuse me, in Luke 19, that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and every stone, no stone, would be left standing of the temple. And there's an interesting backstory to that. King Titus came; he was the Roman general. He came, and they destroyed Jerusalem. And it says when they destroyed Jerusalem that he said, "Don't burn the temple," but somebody set the temple on fire anyway. And as the fire burned in the temple that the gold in the temple melted from the heat and it melted down among the stones of the building and so after it cooled the soldiers were in there trying to break the stones apart so they could get the gold out so that no stone was left on top of another stone amazing amazing so there's a verse 11. Let me get back to our text. Or I'll never finish. Um, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He's going to come back the next day and we'll hear a little bit about that. But there's a paradigm shift occurring here. All through the gospel, do you remember this? Jesus would heal somebody and, and what would he say? Don't tell anybody. Do you remember that? It's kind of a strange thing. He would do something really good and say, don't tell anybody about this. Keep this a secret because it wasn't his time. Now, Mark chapter 11, it's time. As one commentator said, he is no tourist. He is the sovereign king examining the temple to see if it's accomplishing its divinely 
appointed mission. It makes me think about we don't have an appointed temple anymore, but we have lots of expressions of God's community on earth, and that's the local church. And I'm not accountable for all the rest of the churches, but I think about TABC, think about us, and think about this question we always have to ask. We always need to ask, are we accomplishing our mission? Are we doing what God wants us to do? Are we fulfilling the great commission? Are we fulfilling the great commands to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves? Are we being faithful with the resources, the talents, the abilities that God has given to us? Let's finish the text. Verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Now, I don't want to talk too much about this fig tree, but it's an interesting story. Uh, it's the only miracle of destruction that I know of in the New Testament. It's the only miracle of destruction that I know that Jesus did. And the question is, why would Jesus judge a fig tree for not having figs if it wasn't the season to have figs? Did you ask that question when you saw that in the text? That go, well, well, of course it doesn't have any figs. Well, this is symbolic language because the fig tree all through the Old Testament was a picture of the nation of Israel. It was a symbol for the nation of Israel. And, and so this is the judgment because his own people didn't receive him. And that's a picture of the coming judgment. Then we go to the money changers and the animal sellers. And we need a little backstory on for this. People would come in, people would come in from out of town and they'd come to Passover and they'd come to sacrifice animals at the temple. Well, back in the day, people didn't have dually trucks and big nice trailers to haul bulls and animals around behind them. They had to drag them, you know, 50 miles, 75 miles, however far it was for them to come. And so it was, it was better for them to wait and buy an animal when they got to town. And they had to buy a kosher animal, something that was free from defects, something that had been approved. That it was a, and, and what happened was they were taking advantage of people. And, and so, so, so here, here's an animal that would cost $100, and they're charging $500 because they can do it. They can get away with it. So there were money changers there because the Roman currency had to be exchanged for the temple currency in that day to pay the temple tax. And I don't know why they did that. That's like a money-making deal to me. But anyway, I, you know, I wonder if we could get away with that, that we only take certain kind of money here and you have to exchange it out in the lobby. I'm teasing. I'm just messing with you. But that's what's going on here where they, they did something like that. And, and I don't think Jesus was happy with any of that. So not only that, they had, they had all this disrupt going on out in the court of the Gentiles, which was the only place that Gentile believers could come, which shows us a little about the heart of Jesus, that he has a heart for all people, 
not just for his, his nation, the Jewish nation. So a couple problems here. They're taking advantage of worshipers and they're setting up in the court of the Gentiles. So Jesus quoted Isaiah 56, 7. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So they're getting in the way of true worship. And, and by stopping this process, basically Jesus is saying, I refuse to receive this impure, tainted, so-called worship. And this temple process, all this process of buying and selling animals and exchanging money and all this, it's, it's, it's just become a commercial deal. And I think he's saying it's meaningless to me. Church has always been an intent, the intent has always been of our worship is to meet with God, to have an encounter with God, for something to happen. Fast forward to 2017. I want to just say to you, worship and coming to church has never been in the intent of God. It's never been intent to be a rote exercise where you just come you know, you kind of check the block, went to church on Sunday, I'm good, nothing happened, nothing happened, next week, nothing happened. You know, I think the intent is that when we come to church, we ought to, we ought to be expecting something to happen. We ought to be expecting to meet and encounter the true and living God. And when that really happens, we don't stay in the same place. Something's got to give. Something's got to move. Um, when we are wholehearted and pure-hearted, I think God does that. Now, now, just one example, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. It says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in the front of the altar. First go be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, I'm not saying that happens every Sunday, but what I'm saying is the idea is when we meet and encounter with God, God changes us, God meets us, God challenges us, God convicts us, God moves us. We take the next step, whatever it is. I think what Jesus is saying here all through this text is that outward religiosity, church attendance, going through the motions, is, 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 is not the same as true spirituality. And never, ever think that outward routine will be enough. You see, God sees our hearts, and He knows our deepest thoughts. And so, so I say this, hmm, I, I want to I, I cast a vision for you today that when you meet together for, really on any level, with God's people for church on Sunday morning or maybe your life group or an equipping class or whatever, I think there ought to be a sense of anticipation. There ought to be excitement. And the idea ought to be like, huh, I wonder what God's going to do today. I wonder what God's going to change today. I wonder where he's going to move me today. I wonder who else he's going to move and how he's going to work. And I think we've lost that. Ho-hum. Show up for church, go through the motion, 
put on a happy face. Hey, how are you? Fine, how are you? You may be dying on the inside. I'm fine. Shock somebody. Tell them how you're really doing when they ask how you're doing. Sometimes people will just, you know, sometimes I do that to people and they look at me like, oh, really? I thought you'd just say fine and walk away, Pastor. When those people went to Jerusalem, when they went to Jerusalem, I don't think, I think this was a fluid situation. I don't think anybody went and thought, I'm going to go today, Jesus will come, I'm going to wear an old cloak today because I'm going to spread it out here for the red carpet treatment and I don't want him giving me my old cloak. No, I think it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a spontaneous thing that, that happened. And I, I'll tell you this, none of those people walked away and said, boy, I wish I hadn't done that. Oh, no. I was thinking about this. If you go back in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 2, you read the story about the, the four friends that had a paralytic, and they, brought, they wanted to bring him to Jesus. And you remember what happened? They got there, and there were so many people that came there. You know what they did? They got radical. They got radical. They went, they got up on the roof, and they dug a hole in the roof and let him down inside. That's radical. If you're the homeowner, it's really radical. But, you know... Status quo, going through the motions, Christianity, is just not good enough, folks. It's not good enough. And that's what I see in here. So let me give you a couple conclusions. Number one, play your unique role. Provide a donkey, spread a cloak, break branches, sing psalms to the king, use your spiritual gifts, use your resources, use your time, use your money. If you don't know how to serve him, we have a shape document. And uh, we're going to have some on the back table. We're going to have some on the back table. They're on the back table now. If, you, uh, if you've been through TABC 101 in the last 10 years, probably you've gone through that. But some of you have not. And if you want to get that to kind of find out what your gifts are and how you can serve God, pick one of those up. But we want to value the same things that God values. So play your role. Second, don't play church. I, I'm sure in this day a lot of the religious folks thought they were doing really good in the eyes of God because they were making money. They're keeping the temple going. They're kind, of keeping the, they're kind of keeping the organization running. And Jesus wasn't very happy with the way they were doing it. And again, it's easy to come to church and go through the motions and doing the religious stuff. But God forbid. God forbid that we go through the motions of just maintaining the meetings of the church and the ministries of the church and those outside of the church. And I think we must continually ask some questions. We need to ask questions like this. Father God, what's next for me? What's next for our church? I think they'll have a slide on that. There you go. What do you want us to do? What do you want me to do? What does it mean to be a community of worship and prayer? How can we fulfill the great commission to go to every creature, to reach the 10,000 people within driving distance of our church who never darken the door of a church? To reach the people you know at work and at school and in the community, how can we fulfill the great commands to love God and to love our neighbor?
These are the questions. I think that these things ought to be etched on our hearts. We ought to be continually asking these questions. Again, life is fluid. It's moving. We, you know, we don't want to be. We don't want to be stuck. God forbid that we just go through the motions. I'm going to pray about that in just a minute. Let me just remind you again. One, one practical step you can do is these invite cards. Bring somebody with you next Sunday. Take them to lunch. Feed them lunch at your house. Bribe them. Whatever you have to do. All right? Hey, Bible, Jesus talked about using, what does he call it? Mammon, unworthy mammon for, to purpose, for his purposes. The second thing is you need to be asking, what, what's, what, where am I supposed to be serving? How am I supposed to please God? What, what does God have next for me? Will you do that? We're going to have a closing prayer. Uh, before we do, let me introduce Olin and Michaela Carr. Would you all stand up? They're joining our church today. They'll be in the back shaking hands with, with me, and so come by and greet them. Let's all stand together, and let me have a closing prayer. As always, if I've raised questions uh, about your next step in your spiritual journey, I'd love to chat with you about that this week, so contact me. Father, we thank you today for your word, and we praise you for uh, the truths that we see in your word and, and that apply to our lives today. Thank you for Ola and Michaela and for bringing them to yourself, for bringing them to be a part of our fellowship. Bless them as they follow you. May we minister to them. May they minister to us. And Lord, may this be a blessed week as we gather on Monday, Thursday to, to think about the eve before you went to the cross. As we gather on Easter Sunday and, and celebrate your resurrection from the dead. Oh Lord, may our hearts overflow. In Jesus' name, amen.